So then let's read the parable. Verse 3, he says, listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground. Quick comment. Whichever one of your kids are drawing the sidewalk, the really hard ground, draw some birds on it too. Okay. So then it says, some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some 30 fold, some 60 and some a hundred. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, if you read in the next verse, but when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. Now in Luke chapter 12, and I believe it's in Matthew 13, it adds a detail, which is that after Jesus gave this parable, he left and a whole bunch of people left as well. And it was a smaller group with the 12 that followed Jesus when he went to go be alone. And he, that's where he explained what this parable meant. So you see Jesus already employing what I just mentioned earlier, which is that he gives a parable with no context and says, this is what I need to teach you. And they're all like, what does that mean? So then he leaves and the people that were willing to follow him and be patient with going through the work were the ones that he explained the parable to. So the same thing happens to us today. If you read something and you give up on it and say, well, I don't know what that means. I must not be smart enough to read the Bible. That's what's going to keep your heart hard. And that's what's going to keep you ignorant. You got to be willing to go through the work. That's lesson number one. So that he explains the parable verse 11. He said to them, to you, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables so that seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. So in other words, he's saying people who are inside the kingdom who have a relationship with Christ, it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But to those who are outside, in other words, those who are not in the kingdom of God, he has intended the word to be mysterious and confusing. Like, for example, when you think about the Garden of Eden, when after Adam and Eve sinned, the aid of the forbidden fruit, he kicked them out of the garden and, and protected or guarded the way back to the garden. And, and what he said was the reason why I'm going to keep them out of the garden is so they don't go back in and eat the, from the tree of life and live forever. So why would he make the solution to their problem hidden and protected when eating of the tree of life is what they needed? It's because after that, after they fell, they're now in a fallen state and he did not, did not want them to access eternal life while still in their sins. They had to be delivered from their sins first before they could have life, right? So for those who are outside, the Bible says that scriptures can be twisted to destruction. So if God gives complete access to the mysteries of the kingdom to those who are not in the kingdom, it's a very dangerous thing. It can be abused, misused. So he's saying it is not your job as somebody inside the kingdom to try to make the word of God clear to somebody who's outside the kingdom because they're not going to be given access to it the way that God designed until after they're inside the kingdom. The Bible says the veil on scripture is taken away in Christ. 
So you don't have to try to explain scripture to somebody who is not saved yet. Otherwise, they won't get it. It's Christ and him crucified. Always. The simple message of the cross, that's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Start and stay on the basics until a person's born again. That's what Jesus is doing. So he's saying, if you're inside the kingdom, you get to know the mysteries. So you guys have VIP access to things that the world's not going to know. So you're special. Congratulations. All right. <laughs> Chapter four, verse 13, he says, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So if you don't get this one, you won't get anything else. The sower sows the word. So the seed that's being sown is the word of God at scripture. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Matthew 13 says it's taken away because they did not understand it. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with gladness and they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. These are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Okay, so we're going to go back and review all that, but before we do, we're going to look at Luke's account. So go to Luke chapter 8. We're going to read what Luke hears. Jesus saying in the same parable. So turn there, Luke chapter 8, verse 11. And we're going to break it down section by section according to Luke's account. So Luke chapter 8 verse 11 says, Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The soil is you, your heart, your soul. And the stones, the weeds or the thorns, and the birds that pluck the seed up all represent things in your life that will keep you from being fruitful. To be fruitful means for the word to produce after its own kind. The Bible says in Genesis that when God created seeds, he designed every seed to produce a tree that would bear fruit after the kind of the seed. In other words, God said it in the laws of nature that if you plant an apple seed, you're going to get an apple tree, which is going to bear apples. If you planted an apple tree and it bore oranges, we would have a problem. So he's saying he designed the word to produce exactly what is in the seed itself and to produce fruit that has the same seed in it. So if you think about it this way, the word, the seed, when it is sown in your heart, it is not seen. In other words, people don't look at your life and go, the word of God's been sown in your heart. If there's no fruit yet, fruit is when people see what the seed produced. So the fruit is what can be seen and experienced by the world through your life. So in this case, when somebody is interacting with you, they have some kind of relationship with you and they go, man, there's just so much joy in your life and there's so much peace. And why do you have this hope? You don't sorrow like everyone else around me. You're not addicted to things like everyone else. You're not just depressed like everyone else. That's fruit. That's what the world can see. And they, the Bible says they taste of it. 
They taste of that fruit and they experience the goodness of God. So the goal is that the word would produce itself visibly and tangibly in your life. That's the purpose of the word. The reason why you are alive is so that the seed, which was sown in your heart through the word of God, would turn your life into something that is itself a fruitful, tangible expression of the word of God. That's exactly what Jesus was. The Bible actually says that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, who was a virgin, by the overshadowing power of the Holy Spirit. And he was the word made flesh. Jesus was the prime example of a seed that produced after its own kind. Jesus became the word, but in flesh. The reason why you are alive is for the same purpose. That the word would change you into this tree that just produces hundredfold harvest of the fruit that God has designed to have in your life. Amen? That's why you're alive. So, if the seed is the word, then what's the wayside? So he describes it. Verse 12 of Luke 8. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. As I mentioned earlier, Matthew 13, Matthew's account of the parable of the sower, says this is due to not understanding the word that is preached to you. So, this can apply to believers or unbelievers. But we're going to talk about believers because that's who we are. If anything, any scripture, any word of God, any teaching any revelation that is taught to you, preached to you, and you hear it, it goes into your ears, or you read it out of the Bible, and you don't understand it, that word is now vulnerable for the devil to pluck it away so it produces nothing in your life. doesn't even get a chance to sprout if you don't understand it. That's what Matthew says. This is why it's so important to not just read and then move on. In fact, one of the most fruitless things you can do for your relationship with God is read the Bible, but never think about it. You'll start to actually deceive yourself into thinking that you're doing your good Christian duty when, in fact, you are harming yourself and causing that word to go to waste. Yes. Mm-hmm. Knowing you, Karen, your experience is that when you read it, you just think about it. That's what you do. It's natural to you, right? Am I correct in saying that? But not everyone's that way. Some people, it's typically it's a matter of their growth. You eventually get to a point where you meditate on it naturally. It comes automatically to you. But for many, people are taught that you just have to read it, and then you can move on and live the rest of your life the same way without ever having to think about it again. And a lot of people live their lives that way. And that's what we have to avoid. And the way that you undo that or make sure you don't uh, produce that same habit in your life is to make sure that you are patient. The Bible says that you bear fruit when you do so with patience. We'll read about this later. But you need to have patience with the word in order for it to take root and sprout in your life. that, That means meditating on it. Okay, so... The devil takes away the word, lest they should believe and be saved. Now, if you're talking about this in terms of unbelievers being saved, it makes sense. But also think about this in terms of the word that's sown, 
you believing it and it saving your life in whatever area it is addressing. So if you hear a word, let's say, which is that if we talk about healing, that God has given you the power to, to heal the sick, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. If you never think about that, the devil can take that, that word, that seed, pluck it away so that you don't come to believe in that word, which would result in you healing the sick. That's the salvation of that word taking place in your life. Because salvation is far beyond just what happens in the spirit. When somebody is delivered from poverty and they learn to work and maintain their own life and livelihood, that is being saved from poverty. When somebody is healed of a sickness, that's being saved from sickness. James chapter 5 says that the prayer, the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Same Greek word, sozo. Salvation of the spirit, soul, and body is what God wants in your life. So if your spirit's saved, but your flesh is destroyed, you might end up in heaven, but your life's going to suck. <laughs> and we don't want that for anybody, right? So then, if you keep reading, verse 13, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. So receiving it with joy requires that you had some understanding. So you received the word, you accepted it, and you went, oh, man, I get this. Thank you, Lord, for that. And you get excited about it. And then here's what happens. You try to apply it or act on it too quickly without giving it time to grow roots. Then resistance takes place. And because of discouragement, you fall away. You withdraw from faith in that word, and it doesn't produce any fruit. So, for example, this can look like, let's say, you hear a teaching about generosity, being a giving person, and you understand the importance of giving, but you don't have the time spent in understanding how to apply that maybe practically in your life. And so you act too quickly and you just give way, 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 way too much away to anyone, regardless of who they are. And you start to squander instead of steward. And then you end up broke and you think, well, what happened? And you fall away and say, well, this must not be for me. Right. So in other words, just because you receive a word and it gets you excited about it, we're supposed to take the time, not just to understand it, but to let it grow roots, which means, and the, this is based on the purpose of roots and a root system, is so that when storms come, when it gets windy, when it gets too sunny, when it rains a lot, everything, that the roots provide the plant with the solidity, the security that it needs to stay standing no matter what comes. So... Being patient with the word means, okay, Lord, you've taught me this. Show me where else in scripture this, this teaching can be supported. What do I need to learn? Really, really let it become a well-rounded understanding instead of just, oh, that's so cool. I'm going to go act on it now. Wait until you've given it the time to really understand it, to let it grow roots, and then act on it. Now, in some cases, the Lord will tell you to do something, and you're supposed to do it immediately. That would be a little, little bit different situation. We're not going to get into that right now. What we're talking about now is just the teachings of the word. Give it time to grow roots. 
This also means that you have to be prepared for tribulation, temptation, or persecution arising for the sake of the word. This means that you can definitely expect that when you receive the word of God, understand it and rejoice over it, that the devil is going to want to do everything that he can to steal that word or to prevent it from becoming unfruitful, which means there is going to be resistance. When you get something and you really want to be obedient to God with it, there's going to be persecution arising for the, for the sake of that word. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have people storming your house to stone you with rocks. But what it does mean is that as soon as you try to be obedient to it, there's going to be things, temptations that come up to try to pull you away, to cause you to withdraw. So know that ahead of time, just like Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but rejoice, I have overcome the world. And then he said later, I have told you this so that when it happens, it doesn't surprise you, right? So don't expect that obeying the word is going to be easy. There's going to be resistance. So know that ahead of time so that when you're studying the word, you're also praying and reading with the attitude that God will give you the solidity that you need to face and withstand that resistance when it comes upon your obedience to the word. Amen. The flesh. Right. Right. That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. Good word. So the resistance, like time of temptation, the Bible says every man's tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. So the flesh is going to want to resist. just like Marcy's point. The flesh is going to want to resist what God's doing in your life. So you have to deny the flesh, deny yourself. That's essential for the word producing fruit in your life. So don't be surprised when there's resistance. Rejoice over it. Sure. Yep. The flesh is always going to be the first point of resistance is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in summary, expect resistance to that word so that it doesn't surprise you and make sure you give the word time to grow roots. It means be patient with it. Spend time in it. Super important. Okay. Verse 14. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. So this is when it, the way that Jesus described this in Luke is that it sprouts, it grows, the buds show up. You start to produce something. Then it gets choked out. Now he says cares, riches, and the pleasures of life. In Mark, it says the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. I want to spend probably most of the time, at least for the remainder of the time, talking about this on this type of soil where it gets choked out by thorns and weeds, because this is going to be most common, I would say, especially in the West. And let's start just by defining these three things, cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. So what are the cares of the world? That Greek word for cares simply means distractions. The distractions of the world means distractions of this earth and earthly life. So an example of this would be investing so much of your affection and attention in your work that you don't give attention to the spirit anymore. Yes, you have work, address that responsibility, but if you let it become your God, you've been choked out by a care of the world and you will not produce fruit to maturity. That would be one example. 
But just think about this in terms of any distraction that comes from this life. Now, what this tells you is that the responsibilities of life do not have to become a distraction. This life is this life, and it's a blessing, and it's a gift. But you can let things become a distraction. The other day, I was praying about this, and the Lord just told me that it can be as simple as worries or stresses. You can just worry about something. And you start to entertain that worry, and you feed it. That's another care of the world. Anything you can think of, and I would ask the Lord about this, your own heart that distracts you from the spirit and the word obeying him and being in his word that's the care of the world then the deceitfulness of riches the deceitfulness of riches is basically how worldly wealth deceives you into believing you're okay when you're really not that's what the deceitfulness of riches is In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus described it this way, that you believe that you have everything and that you have need of nothing, but really you're poor, blind, and naked. And so he says, buy from me gold refined in the fire. In other words, he's saying true riches that the world cannot take away, that wrath or must can't destroy, and that a thief won't be able to break in and steal. Treasure in heaven, right? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. If you seek riches or seek wealth and let that be your pursuit, like 1 Timothy 6 warns us about, those riches the enemy will use to deceive you into complacency. And this usually starts when we take on a perspective that the purpose of following Jesus is so that we would have a good life. Because if that's what you believe, about this faith, then you're going to seek wealth and think God's job is to bless you until you arrive at that wealth and you go, okay, I'm good. Now I'm a happy person. And I'll just keep believing and keep my faith private until I make it to heaven. That is a perspective that empowers the deceitfulness of riches. So you have to realize, number one, that the purpose of this life is not that you would be happy in terms of how the world describes that. It's not about you being wealthy. It is about you being equipped for every good work that God has called you to do. And money will serve that purpose of doing the work of the kingdom. But the pursuit isn't money. The pursuit is his kingdom and money is a tool for that. Amen. So don't let riches deceive you. And practically speaking, for most of us, this is just going to look like any situation wherein we would be persuaded out of taking action because of comfort or, or complacency. So, for example, and th- this, this is subtle. Sometimes you don't see it. But, for example, if you are, let's say, doing an outreach for a, a, a group of um, the homeless or just some kind of poor or, or needy community of people, and you bless them magnanimously, and you get this whole outreach going, and you have taken these people who are living on the street and now they're all in their own homes. And you brought it all the way up to that point. Then you stop there and say, okay, they have a good life now. They're not living on the street anymore. I've done my social duty. And you let it stop there. That is an example of riches deceiving you out of the true riches, which is life eternal in the kingdom of God. So this means you have to realize your number one priority is not the flesh, it's the spirit.
the flesh and its healing follows the spirit. So if you're saying the goal of this Christian life is to serve people, to give them food and drink and to clothe them, which we are called to do. But if that's the only thing you think about, you're robbing them of what really is eternal life. Because if you make someone's day, but they don't know Christ, their eternity is in hell. And it really won't matter at the end of the day that you made them a little happier. Unless the name of Jesus was what you preached. So don't let riches, whether it's a, whether you're rich or poor money and what it brings you can deceive you out of the importance or blind you to the importance of the word of God. So stay away from that. That's about the deceitfulness of riches. Then there's the desire for other things. This one to me is the most convicting, but also the most powerful. It simply says this very thing will choke the words growth in your life so that it does not produce fruit. And it is simply the desire for anything other than the word. In other words, you're not actually supposed to want anything except Christ. Which is interesting to think about. Like we sing songs, for example, like you're all I want, you're all I need. And we sing that and sometimes we don't really understand what we're singing. What you're saying is that if you're all I want, then that means you don't want anything else. Now, how do you know that you don't, that you're true and sincere when you say to God, you're all I want. That means anything other than him that is lost, stolen or robbed from you, or that dies does not worry you. That's why Paul said, I can be content in whatever state I am because my only pursuit is Christ and him crucified and know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. If God is all you want, then losing anything other than him is no concern to you. Christ is all you need and all you want anyway. So in other words, the word will be choked, causing you not to produce fruit if you have desire for anything other than Christ. Now, this does not mean you're not allowed to enjoy things in this life, okay? I'm not, I'm being a downer here. You can still enjoy blessings, like the food that God's given you. But not letting the flesh abuse it, or not letting the flesh idolize it in your life is really what, what we're getting at here. So Christ is, Jesus is not saying that you can't have normal wants that allow you to enjoy this life. He's saying as soon as a human want or need starts to take a place of prominence that gets even close to the prominence that Christ is supposed to have in your life. That's when it needs to be taken away. Right. Lust of the flesh. Right. So be aware of this and just realize that Jesus said, Hey, desire for other things, desire for anything other than him. And you'll know this by how much you think about something. You should, be th you should be thinking about your relationship with God more than anything else. And as soon as your thoughts just take on this obsession for something, whether it's a worry, whether it's your work, whether it's a person, any person, it can be your spouse, a friend, a child of yours, doesn't matter who, any person or thing that you start to think about, 
that, that you obsess over, that in itself is a lust of the flesh, and that will choke out the word's progress in your life. That's the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. Then he says, verse 15, but the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Keep it and bear fruit with patience. So let's just break this down. You hear it with a noble and good heart. That means an honest and virtuous heart is what it means in the Greek. In other words, you have sincere motives. The word actually can't be received in your heart at all and produce anything godly unless your heart is in the right place. You're honest about your motives and your intention is for virtue, for righteousness. You want God's will to be done in your life. That's what it means to have a noble and good heart. Then it says you keep it. That means to guard or protect it. You don't let anything steal it away. It is so treasured by you that you protect it and guard it as the number one priority in your life. You will not let anything take precedence over the progress of the word in your life. That's what it means to keep it. After you keep it, it says, then you will bear fruit with patience, which means you got to give it time. Mentioned this earlier. You can't expect that when a certain word or truth is sown in your heart, that immediately there should be some results. This has been a question I've heard a lot, which is, hey, I read the Bible today and I learned something and maybe I took some notes, I journaled about it, I prayed about it, but what am I supposed to do with it? What do I do with this now? How, how, how can I apply this to my life? And what happens is we start to become addicted to the nuggets of the word that we feel we need to apply to our lives today. Because it's a microwave society. We want everything to happen now. And people treat the Bible that way, which is you think that it has to somehow show up now. But the whole point is that when you sow a seed in the ground, you water it and you walk away. If you treated actual gardening, or farming, like you treated the word, or the way that most Christians treated the word, you'd plant a seed and you would just stare at it and think, work. And it, I read my Bible. I planted the seed. Why isn't anything happening? That's the attitude that actually robs you of fruitfulness because you don't bear fruit unless it's with patience. You, you sow the word, let it ruminate, let it sit, walk away. Don't worry or stress over it. Let the word do its work, and it's not going to be seen. You're not going to see the fruit from it until later, but if you keep watering it, it will eventually sprout and grow, and then you will see the fruit. But don't give up on watering it, and that's what people do. They read something, and they give up on it. They stop watering it. And if you do that to a seed in gardening, it will die, and you will have no fruit. So just simply meditating on the word, even if nothing happens for years, you might just find out after those years have passed, that what sprouts and grows will be everything that you were looking for and more and everything that God wanted in your life because you were willing to address it with patience. Super important. Did you have a comment? Actions produce fruits. Yeah, that would be a form of belief in the word. So if you believe in the word, you're going to act on it. Like, for example, the word saying, 
bear fruit with patience, an action you would take on that is to continue investing in the word. That would be an action. You will. Yeah, if you believe it, you will act on it. Yep. An action you can take to get rid of temptations in your life? Oh, just to be aware, to find out what they are. What was that? Oh, yeah, that's one thing. Fasting you can do. Teaches you self-control. Another thing, this is what God has done throughout biblical history, is as soon as he tells you that something is an idol or that has you give it too much attention, he takes it away or tells you to get rid of it and see how you handle it. So good rule of thumb is if you're thinking, man, this, this might be getting a little too much of my time. Or my mental capacity. First thing you should do is get rid of it. And see what happens. And he'll do this in every area of your life. It can be relationships. It can be food. It can be hobbies. Anything that takes precedence over Christ. Learning to overcome it. And maintain the self-control and mastery over the flesh. Requires that you'd be willing to sacrifice it for the sake of the kingdom. And after it's sacrificed, that's when God can return it to you. But now in a healthy relationship instead of an obsessive one, that would just be, does that answer the question? Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to summarize all of this. And then I'm going to go through just a list that I have written down here. of What, what a, a heart of fertile of fertile soil is. Okay. Fertile soil is a heart that is soft with understanding. Heart that is without stones, strongly rooted, which is the word is obeyed in spite of adversity. It's a heart that's without thorns and weeds or a heart that is not distracted from the spirit by anything earthly. It is without worry, a heart that remains always poor in spirit, never letting worldly provisions or comforts create complacency. And it's a heart that has no strong desire except for the most high. This means that a person must give time to fully understand the word given him. He must be patient to allow the seed to sprout and grow deep roots in his heart, even if he doesn't see it. Roots that are deep enough to withstand any resistance. And he must give carnal things none of his attention, setting his mind always on things above and not on things on the earth. We are to find our only real pleasure in the word and in Christ, because if our pleasure is in him, he will make all else pale in comparison, and we will find no pleasure, real pleasure in anything else. So he will be our rejoicing in everything. Remember that one man sows and other waters, but the Bible says God gives the increase. It is not your job to make a seed grow. That's God's job. Your job is to plant it and water it. In other words, listen to the word and water it, give it time, give it attention, and he will bring the increase. He's promised it. And if at any point you give up on this process, all the work you will have done before that will have meant nothing. So if you're going to devote to following Jesus, you are devoting to giving your time and attention to the one thing you've been called to do, which is hear the word, 
let that seed be sown in your heart and water it and let God bring the increase. And that's a process that takes time. If you can't devote yourself to that, then there's really no point in following Jesus. Because everything in the, in the kingdom works through sowing and watering. The Bible says the whole kingdom works. The kingdom of heaven, the whole thing is as a mustard seed sown in the ground. That though it's the least of all, in other words, it's really underestimated. You're like, what is this going to do? Tiny little mustard seed, you sow it in the ground, and it becomes a tree greater than all the herbs. and Birds of the air nest in its branches. That's what the kingdom will become in your life, but it starts with you appreciating the seed that he gave you to start. Taking care of it. Yes. Yep, great question. So the question is, how do you water the seed? And what does that mean? So the Bible says that God cleanses us with the washing of water by the word, um, which is, that's just one example in scripture where it actually ascribes the word of God also to water. Watering it, if you just think about it in terms of gardening, when something's planted, you take care of that seed. So if uh, any scriptural truth is taught to you and you accept it, you believe it, receive it with meekness, which means you say, hey, I'm going to, believe what this says. I'm not going to make excuses. Watering it is like when you continue studying it, number one, so that you understand it. Number two, you continue to give it attention in terms of teaching and conversation. So you water that seed through time with other believers who are believing the same thing, you know, continuing to read. Uh, that would be other examples. It basically means when something is is taught to you, you don't believe it for a while and give up on it. It means you keep believing in it, keep studying it, and keep acting on it. That's the, that's the third thing here, that you, you find ways to act on it to demonstrate that faith that you have in it. So, for example, like when I mentioned healing early, earlier, if you believe, and when the Bible says, lay, the hands, lay your hands on the sick and they will recover, the way you'll act on that to water that seed is by continuing to pray for people. And if at any point you give up on praying for people, you stop watering the seed. So keep believing it. If you keep believing it, you will keep taking action, and that's watering it that will cause it to grow. Does that make sense? Okay. So, all right. So God brings the increase. It will grow on its own, and it will grow bigger every day. And you might not see it, but if you look, look back years down the road, you'll realize, man, where I am now is so much further than where I was before. But if you stare at it every day, it's going to seem like nothing's happening. So that's why you shouldn't worry over it. So in summary, a fertile heart is honest and virtuous, is patient, waiting for fruit to be produced in perfect timing. Because some seeds and some plants take longer to grow than others. Some plants need that time. Others don't need as much of it. So it might be different for different things, different seeds or different scripture. The fertile heart listens to all the word to meditate on and understand it. In other words, it says, it says that you accept it. The Bible says, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is that everything that is in the Bible, you accept. You don't cherry pick. You don't believe one thing, but not another. You want to believe all of it or none of it. That, that's what it means to accept it. It accepts and submits to all the word with delight. Receive it with joy. It does not fall away from faith in the word in time of temptation or tribulation. Is never distracted, which is to be divided in mind, which is what it means in the Greek, from the purpose of bringing forth fruit. 
It is never made complacent because of money or comforts. It is never desirous of anything other than the word and its intended fruit. And it protects, seizes, and holds fast to the word. Fertile soil exists for nothing but to receive seed and nourish it under fruition. So we must live for nothing but to receive the word and turn it into fruit. That's why you're alive. But God speaks, turn it into fruit. That's the whole point. All right. Are there any more questions about any of this before we move on? I do want to see all the pictures that the kids drew. I don't know where they went. <laughs> That's okay. Okay, any more questions? Maybe about a different topic that's just been on your mind. Wow. Okay. Is everyone understanding this? Sure. Only they can. It's not changeable by man, but it is by God. The question was, in short, how do you change the soil if it's right, right, right. Yeah, it takes, in fact, there's actually a scripture in Jeremiah that God's word is like a fire and like a hammer that breaks rock in pieces. So the Bible talks about God will remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. That's only something the Holy Spirit can do. So that's why it's only our job to sow and God's job to bring the increase, which includes changing a person's heart. Because we can't change anyone's heart. Only God does that. But when we sow, it's almost like you're, you're spreading seed on something. When the soil doesn't receive it, the person starts to notice, man, God has good in mind, but I'm not receiving it. And that's when they're brought to repentance and God changes their heart as a result of that. So that just tells us that, hey, we're still supposed to sow, period, and trust God that he will Change the soil. Yeah. It's the word. Yeah. The seed is the word. The gospel. Yeah. I mean, any word for, for unbelievers, it's, you know, Christ and him crucified. That is, that is the word that produces sal the, the first step of salvation, which is to be born again. But for us, any scripture that we hear is a seed. Yeah. You have the Holy Spirit, so it will be done in your life if you prioritize him, basically. Yeah, God, God will get rid of the weeds. He will take out the rocks. He will do that uh, because you belong to him, because you're his child. And you can expect correction. Yes, yep, and you're obedient and abide in him. Yeah, I would agree. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's Matthew 6, 33, like you said. Yeah, yeah so it, it is true that this can certainly be applied to unbelievers. But if you look at a believer who has distractions and cares, desires for other things, 
And if we assume that they're saved, but they have all these things in their life that are fighting for their attention, pulling them away from the word of God, that would not be good soil. So this certainly applies to believers simply by observation of, number one, the fruit that God intends for us to, to see produced in our lives and whether we have that fruit or not. Because the goal is the fruit. If there isn't the fruit, then the seed isn't growing. So that's why the soil needs to be in the right place, which applies to all of us. Because if we don't have fruit in a certain area, then that means there's work that's done to cultivate. And so this, I mean, a great, another rule of thumb is this, when you read something and you, let's just take a paragraph, you read out a scripture or a chapter and you say, is my, does my life, does my life exhibit what I'm reading? Is there something in my life that a person can observe and they, and they would see that what I'm reading is reality? And how I live my life. Because that would be fruit. So if you're reading about put away wrath, anger, and clamor, and evil speaking. and Let your speech always be with grace and seasoned with salt. That's a seed, right? Now, if you look at your life or a person looks at your life and they see there isn't wrath or clamor or anger in your life, but that you do speak with grace. That would be fruit. Because that word, what you're reading, is reality in your lifestyle. That's fruit. So if there isn't fruit in that area, that means the seed needs to be watered or planted. If you've heard something for the first time in your life, that would be a seed being planted. Your investment in your relationship with God is watering it, and then it eventually will grow, but with patience. So that's, that's how it works for, for believers. Okay, any more questions? Sure. I think so. Are you saying that if a seed would die, like that wouldn't happen for a believer? Or what is... Here's the thing. Here's... here's to think about it this way. The Bible says you are born again by the seed of the word of God. And that word lives and endures forever. That's, that's in 1 Peter 2. It tells us that, or 1 Peter 1, chapters 1 and 2, I think, gets into that. But the, the word that, or the seed that caused you to be born again lives and endures forever. And that will never die. And that's why salvation is eternal. It, it can't ever be stolen. But the whole Bible is not just one seed. Practically every verse is another seed. So there's all, there's like Jesus talked about the kingdom itself is like this mustard seed. But then he also says you're to have faith like a mustard seed. So he makes a distinction between a seed of the kingdom and then a seed of faith. 
Those are two different things. You can also have, well, I mean, a seed in any, any individual topic or verse or teaching, all of that is seed. In fact, just in this one teaching, there's probably hundreds of seeds that just... And whatever ones you received and that you water will grow in your life. Yes. Yeah, it's really important because it tells you that you have to cultivate your own heart too. We got a part to play in it, you know. So it's really important. Yeah, the, the, the key for me was just remembering that it's not just the seed that gets me born again that's been sown in my heart. Because he talked about, like I said, faith. He also described as a seed. That's a separate, separate issue. The faith to move mountains in context, that's a, that's a separate seed. So if that's a different seed, then there's probably lots of others that's been sown. And so it's important to remember that because then you'll realize, oh, this faith issue, whether I can believe to move mountains is a matter of a seed that was sown and I have to water that seed and God will bring increase. In other words, my faith will increase if I water the seed. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Guard your heart with all, with all diligence out of it. Full spring, the well, or flows, the well springs of life, you know, um, you've also got Jude chapter one in verse three that says contend earnestly for the faith, which is once for all delivered to the saints. You know, we have a part to play in it. Like it says the, in Luke with a noble and good heart, you keep the word and bear fruit with patience, protect it. So the way you protect the seed, like I was just doing this the other day in my yard because we planted a clematis vine against a trellis and there's these weeds that were growing through the fence behind it and the clematis was grabbing onto the weeds instead of the trellis and it was getting all mingled and so I had to pull it apart. That was guarding something that was growing. You do the same thing for your heart, which means you have to have caref careful watch over it. And that's why examining yourself, like you mentioned, is important. The Bible does tell us to do that in 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. That's what it says to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. By the renewing of your mind. Trans be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yep. Romans 12, 2. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, any more questions? Yeah. What's being grown is the word to produce fruit. That too. So after its own kind. So if the seed is faith to move mountains, right? The fruit would be the faith that moves the mountain. Does that make sense? After its own kind. So if you are reading, be kind and tenderhearted and forgive one another. The fruit of that produced would be you become kind and tenderhearted and forgive one another. Make sense? So that, that would be fruit. And then also people. That, that's a different kind of fruit. The Bible talks about that as well. Did, did you have a question? Comment maybe? Yeah.
Right. For believers. Yeah. Great point. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Another thing that I've had on my heart recently that I will add to that. Thank you for making that comment. Um, what is about grace. So the Bible says in James four, that God gives more grace In Acts chapter, I think it's five. It says that great grace was upon them all. This is the early church. And we're told that you access grace through faith, through faith. You have by faith, we have access to the this grace in which we stand. Ephesians two says, and if God can give more grace, then you can grow into more and more and more grace. The Bible says that spiritual gifts, the Greek word for gifts, charisma, which is where we get English word charisma, is the same root word for grace, which is charis or charis. So gifts are actually a grace of God given to you. So if God can give more grace, or you, if you can grow in grace, then you can grow in spiritual gifts as well. So, like, for instance, we've been discovering this lately just with some friends and I. We've been talking about this, and the Lord was showing to me that you, you actually grow in spiritual gifts. And there's one person we were talking to who God said, this is what your gift is. And they were like, I've never seen that in my life. And he said, well, get in the Word, and you'll find out. You know? So basically, God, like, gives you things. But because you grow in grace, which is also gifts, then you actually grow up into and you start to see effective use in more of what God has given you as you grow. So this applies to everything. Like the, even uh, because the Bible says grace grows, that makes it also a seed as well. And that's something that's sown in your heart as well. So there's, there's, this, there's applications for this everywhere. It's just really important to remember. Yeah. Nothing else matters. Yeah. If you don't get this parable, you won't understand any other parable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any more questions or comments? It's a big book. Yes. Yep. So great question. So the question was, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are confusing to a lot of people. And so is it evil to not understand? And this, I think it starts with motives, but I'm going to look up just for the sake of clarification, the Greek word that Jesus used for understanding that we make sure we don't miss any details. Okay, so in Matthew 13, it says, It's sown in his heart because he understandeth it not. It means to put together or mentally to comprehend, consider, or be wise in. So, there are certain things that you will read in the Bible that it is not for you to know everything about. So for example, like revelation, there's a lot of things in revelation 
or like Matthew 24 that God specifically says it's not for you to know. For example, Jesus or uh, Paul talks about the, the coming of the Antichrist and like the end of the world and all this stuff, right? And then he says he will come in his own time. And when the disciples asked about the end of the age, they said, Lord, when is this going to happen? He said, it's not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in, in his own authority. So what this means is that there's going to be some things that you'll read that in scripture it will say, you're not, you don't need to know everything about this. So look for those places when you're reading scripture. Pretty much everything else is going to have some kind of need to be understood to a certain degree. Now, what this doesn't mean is that the first time you read it, you have to understand all of it. But what it means is that you're, you commit to the patience needed to grow in your understanding of it. In some scriptures, it is a matter of immediate understanding, but that's why whether it's immediate or progressive, you just have to be patient with it. So does that make sense? Okay. Does that answer your question? Does it answer the question? <laughs> yep. Yep. But committing to that process of like continue to dig, you know, the patience, right. And being around other people who are studying the word too, and just talking about this stuff, like being in discussion with believers who are also committed to that process is so, so important because that's how you stir each other up. In fact, the Bible also actually talks about when we gather, the goal is stirring each other up. So in other words, other believers help to water your soil. You're not just the one, you don't just do it by yourself. Like the Bible says one man water or one sows and another waters and God gives the increase. So you're not supposed to do this by yourself. Other people sow seed in your heart and other people water the seeds that are already there. That's why it's important to have good and healthy community.